So I'm sitting in a, a University of Liverpool, very smart English uh, office, a couple of days before a reading of poetry about war and the aftermath of war, and one of the poets and, and now memoirists who's going to be there is Brian Turner, who's sitting opposite from me in this incredibly tidy room. Brian's been admiring how tidy... Yeah, there are flowers on the wall. <laughs> There's also a picture of famous painting from the French Revolution, I believe. And, uh, yeah. Your own office would be very different, you said. I don't know. Oh, it'd be, it would be unt- I mean, it's, I think there would be representations of beauty, and then possibly, you know... Um, difficult representations of what you may call patriotism or heroism you know it's uh, that sounds like your uh, your subject in one one (laughs) sentence we can go home (laughs) we were off 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 recorder we were just talking um about your third book which is called my life as a foreign country it's really my seven eight nine wait a minute seven eight nine ten my eleventh book or my third published book Fortunately for all of us. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll get back to a lot of practice books, but yeah. yeah so. And we were just saying that there's an idea that we all have of a, mm-hmm. of a war memoir. I mean, what, mm-hmm. did you have an idea of what a war memoir should be or what, what people, you know, the, a broader audience expects from a war memoir and maybe how you wanted to... In some ways. You know, I, I think there are two sort of general um, pathways. Like one pathway, uh, sort of like the SEAL Team 6 kind of memoir, <laughs> where, where it's... Uh, very concentrated on maybe how someone initially was drawn to service and, and then maybe some of the initial training, very sort of uh, like almost like photojournalism in a liter- literary um, realm. And uh, so it's very, a little bit like Hemingway taken into military practice, you know? Um, so you see, as a reader, you almost learn the job along the way. Yeah. You know, what, what, what do you have to carry? Um, now, when I say something, what you have to carry, then that echoes off of Tim O'Brien, who I'd see more in the, maybe this other pathway, okay. which is a, some people call it literary, but I, I just think that the imagination expands a bit more there. Um, it's poetic, you know, in a sense, because the language is maybe more flowery for people who would like the first version, I mean, the first pathway, which they wouldn't prefer a dry, you know, facts and only the facts, ma'am, you know, kind of approach. <laughs> you, know what, you know what I mean? Just give me the facts. And the other way would be um, we, the landscape of the imagination is superimposed um, amongst the, the landscape of the former. Do you know what I mean? Like the, the, the literary version, I think, tries to include both approaches okay. and melds them together. Is that because your imagination has to some extent been created by your experiences in as a soldier in, in Bosnia and Iraq? and I think for me... And that's why it's hard for me to sort of strip down the imagination to what I feel is the first version, the sort of SEAL Team 6 okay. memoir. Because I'm not against that, you know, I'm not, so I'm not choosing one or the other, just I'm drawn to the other more personally because it seems to mirror or match with the wider landscape of how our minds work, you know. It seems like there's so much more taking place at, at play <coughs> in, in a combat zone or in, in, in crisis or in the even in the boredom that takes place which is much of the narrative okay. <laughs> of being in uniform you know there are some extraordinary passages which will will, will be I can't want to say shocking exactly but uh, which are partly about boredom but there's also you're very frank about writing about sex sure, um, sure. Yeah. Uh, sex and boredom sex as distraction um, mm-hmm. sex, sex is medicine sometimes or a medicine that doesn't work 
Can, yeah. can you expand on that? That's very... Well, this idea of intimacy and feeling... Because um, there's this, you know, the ability... You're going towards a place where you could die, or a moment... You may be approaching a moment that will take your last breath, right? And then in doing so, like in the unit that I was in, it was an all-male unit. So I think there was, uh, you know, there's camaraderie and things like that, but there's a, another type uh, for me, I thought about, you know, girlfriends back home in my life, you know. Um, I was newly divorced, so okay. I was very much sort of separated from any type of connection. Um, uh, so there was no one to come home to. There was no one to, to write home to in that way, you know. Um, but I wasn't sort of, but my heart wasn't devoid of that, that sort of yearning or that hope, you know. Um, and, and I saw that in other people around me. This, even in my, my squad, my squad leader stayed married while we were there. But everybody else in my squad, if they were in a relationship, it ended while they were there. They were, dro- they were dumped. There's an amazing passage where you, m- you meet uh, yeah. a friend of yours who's just had the email saying that his wife has, yeah, has, sure. le- has left him. Yeah. Did that create a particular intimacy right. it, with your... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. With your, with your fellow soldiers? Yeah, I mean, the only, the only human contact you have or connection is with the people to your left and right, really, you know. But there's, um, it's a hyper-masculine world. And there's a whole other, in terms of beauty and, and uh, care and nurturing, a whole subset of, a whole other part of the language or the way of, that we sort of interact with the world seemed separated and disconnected from, from the life there, you know. Were you ever and frightened that you would lose your capacity for that kind of love or that kind of feeling? I should have been, but I was really so much sort of caught up in the, the moment itself okay. that I, I don't... I don't it's hard for me to remember if that actually was part of my thinking process, but I, I don't remember that. What, what I remember, the frightened is the right word, because there was definitely there was a lot of fear, sort of, you know, after a while it became just, um, my job became, it became a job, and it was like routine, but that routine was unlike any routine I've had before or since, where, you know, you can go to a job, I used to be a machinist in a factory, and I, I hated that job and the work <laughs> and stuff, but there was a, it wasn't permeated with fear and this hovering sense of death, it was possible in any given moment. If I made a mistake, I was going to mangle someone to the left or right of me or change them irrevocably for the rest of their lives and have to live with that, you know. So all those kinds of things, um, they just, I don't know, it was sort of deeply pervaded the moment so, to the point where I got used to it and I didn't, wasn't fully aware of how, how afraid I was. Uh, all if the that, time? Yeah. That's why some people say you have triggers and the word trigger. But the way I think of it in a sense is like psychologically... You know, if I'm back home and someone's tailgating, sometimes it can be, it can be really dangerous to you or your family. You have somebody that's right on your bumper and you're going high speed and going around corners, and it's to a point where you know, you know, they're actually being da- they're endangering your family. So, like, we our natural response and it's a good human response is, you know, if we get angry, that's kind of a normal. Pro- I get road rage, which I have to deal with, but <laughs> but you know, um, like say like on a scale from one to ten, that might be like a two, you know, and then other things where someone's breaking into your house would be a ten. You know, because you have to protect your kids and your, you know, your family or whatever it might be. So, but in Iraq, any if there's a, a noise that went off to my left, I had to in that instant I had to just physically and psychologically respond to be instantly ready at ten every time. You know what I mean? And the first few times that something happened, usually nothing had actually happened. There'd be allowed a few shots or something, and then nothing nothing would happen after that. But because I hadn't been in a combat zone, I hadn't been around gunfire that might kill me or, you know, um, 
I wasn't set at 10. I was beginning to learn it. But over, over months, my internal, internal hardware became acutely sort of trained. So that when I came back home, and I think it's common for a lot of people coming, leaving a combat zone, civilians and journalists and, and, and soldiers, when they leave, uh, a those who were able to leave a combat zone, um, have to deal with trying to reset their trigger to, to like a normal... So when that guy tailgates me, I don't respond at a 10, you know. And not even, a lot of them aren't even aware of it. They just get furious. And people around them aren't, they don't understand that kind of anger inside someone. It's the, I mean, it thing. comes across as anger, but there's a psychological, physical part that's learned behavior. A recurring image in, is the image of lovers beside each other mm -hmm. and the, the non-combatant, the non-soldier, being aware of mm -hmm. nightmares and trauma. A woman realizing that her husband is, I think, reliving the death of is it his sergeant. And knowing that at some point, if she interrupts the narrative of the of the nightmare, of the trauma, that he might turn on her, that there's that is that what you sort of mean about that trigger that that, yeah. that it's deep, yeah. sort of hardwired into you that, that sure. those sorts of you know there's um one of the I won't say his name but one of the guys in my squad when he went back um, he's no longer with um, I not I don't think they got married but they were living together but when they were living together he couldn't sleep with her at night you know. They'd have to sleep apart because he he had horrible dreams and he'd wake up and she would be the enemy, you know, kind of thing. Or he might punch her while he's sleeping, not mm -hmm. know he's punching her, kind of thing. So there's there's a violence inside the body that's carried beyond the time of the violence. And that slightly fits what we again we were talking just before we we started we press record, <laughs> but there's a sort of uh, prurient interest, and I'm saying this like, mm. sort of rather ashamed of asking my grandfather this thing, how many men did you did you kill in combat in the Second World War? And this is, and you you obviously get asked this question a lot, but it's... It, well, not a lot, uh, sometimes. sometimes. It does happen sometimes, yeah. But that we never ask how many times did you think you were about yeah, was to some, be killed? Yeah, did someone try to kill you? Yeah. People don't ask that question. Why, is, why, why do you think? Mm. In my case, because I was an occupier, I was an invader. I think it's much more like appropriate to be asked that question in a sense, you know. Um, but then again, I off, what I usually do, say back home in America, is I try to, I, I'm not sure how useful the question is, the response to the question might be. So I want to make sure it is useful. And so I try to connect, because um, the, the word complicity means a lot to me. It's a very useful word to me. So if I can find complicity in myself and share it with someone, they might find it in themselves as well. So if I answer simply in my own sort of judgment of myself and, and share my own personal, here's what happened, I'm not sure how useful that is. But when I can connect them, possibly, to the, the damage that's been done, even in a small thread, then I think it's much more useful. Because, and, and, I, and I'm not trying to hurt anybody by doing it. I don't, I don't want this to happen, but you know, I live in a country that's prosecuting several wars, right? had two simultaneously and doesn't even pay attention to it <laughs> right and then when the soldiers come home it's like oh they oh did you kill someone mm. you know it's a, there's a they're divorcing themselves from the war that they're a part of they're a nation at war they are at war yeah you know they are the supply train that feeds the soldier they like time immemorial you send chickens out to the soldiers to feed them in the field you know there's still that connection <laughs> and and the, by divorcing them it, it it creates a sense where they're creating that separate, that divide, 
it takes some of their own complicity away from the whole process. And then what does that do for the people that are in the country where the harm is mostly distributed? It separates them from that and the care that they will need to have for the rest of their lives. It'll make it easier for them to turn the channel and pay attention to some other some other issue and not, not feel guilt for what, what, in a larger sense, the whole tribe is responsible for. That's a difficult political question, isn't it? About yeah. It asks difficult questions of you because on the one hand, I didn't want soldiers to go out. I was worried about the, the consequences. On the other hand, right. I want to be safe and, and I want people to do that on my on my behalf. I don't want to get... Um, yeah. is, that, is that the sort of... That's a tricky thing, yeah, because there are people who actively fight against, you know, have, have been in the fight against war. You know what I mean? The anti-war movement or peace movement, you know. Um, and so I, I'm not sure if my thinking is fully sound. <laughs> with them. Do you know what I mean? Sure. With the vast majority of Americans, for example, back home, I think it is sound. But there are some among them that um, have fought all the way along the way against the process of going to war, you know. So so some of them I, I have to, you know, think I know there's a lot I can learn from them. Do you know what I mean? But if they pay taxes, then they're still part of it. And how do you not pay taxes? You know, you get sort of co-opted into the war machine, you know, by the structure of the society. You can't just necessarily, you know, strip yourself away from the structure of the society. I wonder if that's a George Bush calling. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Edward Snowden was right. <laughs> They're listening. <laughs> question about us thinking about the reality of what is actually happening to both to an occup- the occupiers and also the occupied um, and I wondered how that informed the way you write about war and it, which is though there's constant slippages uh, you remember you're, you, yourself being present in these kind of moments but also there's the sense of you writing and remembering and, and a relationship between the two there's like also doubling. Yeah. ghosts yeah. dreams and haunt- uh, there's an amazing passage early on where I think it's almost your first patrol. First day in, it was just hours in country. We just crossed the border in Kuwait and we're driving in. And I'd been told, because we'd sent an advance party up, because this is um, December of 2003, so the, the invasion force went in in March. So they've been there for many months, right? People on the ground learning the lay of the land and, you know, who, do you, who might kill you, you know? And like, who is who is the enemy? That's a very conflicting word for me, a very difficult word for me. Okay. You know, in in that sort of time space, so they would have been saying, who's the enemy? So, you know, um, so they come, the advance party comes back and they, they gave this very useful sort of mnemonic device, you know, which was um, see an AK-47, shoot it, <laughs> right? So if you see an AK-47, that's the guy, shoot it, shoot oh. it, right? But shoot him, you know, that's who you have to worry about. And of course, what I found out very quickly is like, AK-47s all over the place. So guys in jeans and like a black jacket, who was a police officer, but he just in jeans and a black jacket, standing on a street corner in many major towns. You go by banks at the time, early on, there were guards up on the on the roofs and by the doors wearing jeans and a jacket and AK-47. I mean, that's the guy I'm supposed to shoot, okay. right? So they told me back in Kuwait. So right in Kuwait, they said it several times, so it just got drummed in a bit in my mind. And then we crossed the border, several hundred vehicles, an entire brigade, and somehow my platoon was at the front. And then my actual, we were usually the trail vehicle of four vehicles in my platoon, these striker vehicles, 19-ton wheeled. Um, they have a, a weapon system up on top, and there's a squad in back of each of them, so the platoon is separated among four vehicles. We were usually the trail vehicle. 
And I was usually in the back of that. There's hat two hatches in the back, one up front, right? A driver down below and a guy who works the weapon system and the rest of the squad sitting on bench seats inside, sleeping. They're not supposed to be, but they're sleeping, you know, or watching porn or something. And then, so we're, we're driving in. We were usually the trail vehicle, but this day our... Um, there's a fancy sort of uh, navigation system with a screen. It was broken. It wasn't working. So it doesn't matter. There's only one road going into Iraq, you know, and it's the Highway 1 is the main highway. But once you get to Baghdad, it gets tricky. It's like Los Angeles, or, you know, not quite like London, but, I mean, it's a major city with lots of crazy, you know, freeway system. If you get off course there, it, it can be, you know, a horrible situation. So we're wondering, like, how is this going to work out? We've never been there. We're driving towards it, you know. And... Um, my for some reason they put my vehicle in the very front and then it's, I don't know who designed this thing because I don't know if it's the same way now but initially they had one of the exhaust ports for the engine was was pointed up at the front instead of the back of the vehicle and it would uh, it blasted or maybe it was heat exhaust coming off the engine I'm not really sure but there was some exhaust heat that would come off right into the squad leader's face the, for like so he's up there for like two three hours just getting breathing noxious fumes and he gets pretty burned out on it so I'm next in command in the squad, so I swapped out with him, and I went up in the hatch, and that's when I saw four guys on the right, each with an AK-47, and they're walking sort of stiff-legged, holding their, their weapon on the far side of their bodies away from us, trying to kind of hide it, conceal it as they kind of walk quickly to, but they're all walking perpendicular to the road, and so they're walking and separate from each other, the way soldiers walk, you know, trying to get to the vehicle on the opposite side of the shoulder of the road. And, uh, and I end up almost shooting within a fraction of a second of shooting this guy second to the left. He had a pot belly a little bit like I do now. And I think he, I, I think that's why I picked him in my mind. I don't know why. There was a reason the second guy from the left, you know. Um, but it was probably because he was bigger and he was easier target. So I don't know. Target. You know? See these are the language that comes out? You know. You have to be very careful about language, you know. So this guy, you know, he had a, he doesn't, he probably knew it, but there's a red dot that's on his rib cage. And that's about... The bullet probably would have landed somewhere in that range, you know, maybe two inches below that dot. And uh, I, I had selector lever gone from safe to semi. My finger, fingers on the trigger. I used to teach rifle marksmanship. I was leaning into the, into the weapon, and uh, over the intercom system, the guy down that was on the weapon system, there's a camera on a gun up above the vehicle. He's zoomed in and he's looking at what I'm seeing as we drive up on these guys. He can hear me cursing at them, yelling. My, my Arabic language train went out the window and I'm just yelling a string of epithets, right? You know, sort of like, you know. And, um, but he see, they see the weapon, but they keep walking to the car. They don't stop. In the middle of the road, I'm still going to the car. As I'm yelling at them and w sort of waving my weapon. And then I leaned in to shoot the guy, on this, this, this gentleman in front of me. And um, the guy to the left of him was tall and skinny. And he's very smart. He very quickly turned. And there, I saw something sort of flash to the side. But I, I was leaning I was gonna shoot the guy, the, the guy next to him. And Perazu, who was on the camera down below me, he said, uh, over the intercom system, he said, badge, I got a badge. And just in that second, I, I released the trigger and I didn't pull the trigger. And you know, one of them, the guy, the guy with the badge was from Chicago. You know? <laughs> and they were, you know, their security contract, they just took a leak, they had to go to the bathroom. And what we couldn't see is down the road further up, out of sight now, because they had stopped to go to the bathroom, was a convoy of, uh, of flatbed trucks with modular housing units. They were bringing houses into Iraq. The story, you know, the good story, build nation building, you know, whatever, if that's a good story, you know. See? We'll Language see. again. We'll see. <laughs> what I learned very quick in that moment was that I can't trust what anybody's telling me. <laughs> now I'm going to have to figure out 
how, how, does, how is this year going to work? You know, I don't know who the enemy is. I don't know who, what I'm trying to say is, I don't know who might try to kill me and who I have to worry about, you know. And I know that the people above me don't know for sure either. I was going to shoot him. You know, I would have shot him, and I only have a fraction of a second of a second in my life that saves me and him from having that happen. You know, and I would have done it. And I only learned in retrospect because Perizu was smart enough to see that they were not the people we should shoot. It wasn't me that did it. It's Perizu that saved that. Uncertainties, the decisions you had to make, the kinds of language you were trying to use, whether it's, you know, you know as you said, your use of epithets, your use of Arabic, reading Iraqi poetry. I was wondering how that shaped your, the, the memoir, but also your, your poetry. I think, um, well, I'd written um, several manuscripts before the first book of poetry, Here Bullet. And if I look at those now in retrospect, I can see a, a writer who writes a much longer line compared to the poems in Here Bullet. The line stretches longer in Phantom Noise, the second collection. So I did stretch back out again. But in both cases, the, the language is far denser previously to my experience in Iraq. And there's sort of a very compressed language that was uh, flowery in some sense. Very, it was more concerned with, I had very, several different subjects that I wrote different manuscripts on but you can see the same kind of music being superimposed over each subject, regardless of subject. And I think I learned in writing Here Bullet, um, I didn't know I was going to write it, but as I was writing it, I was learning how to write poetry where I was listening more to, and I was learning from the language of the space and the time and the place and not superimposing my music over the, the moment. W yeah. Would you mind if I ask you to read Here Bullets as a, sure, an example sure. of Because I think that's got such a sort of percussive, and I, I, I liked very much this idea of almost the language of, of war that you found. I hope that would be all right to... Yeah, yeah. If a body is what you want, then here is bone and gristle and flesh. Here is the clavicle snapped wish, the aorta's open valves, the leap thought makes it the synaptic gap. Here is the adrenaline rush you crave, that inexorable flight that insane puncture into heat and blood. And I dare you to finish what you've started, because here, bullet, here is where I complete the word you bring hissing through the air. Here is where I moan the barrel's cold esophagus, triggering my tongue's explosives for the rifling I have inside of me. Each twist of the round spun deeper, because here, bullet, here is where the world ends every time. So... It's very strange music. I still don't understand that poem. You know. Why is that? Um, well, that's for me. This poem is still doing its work. You know. Uh, you know, if you read something, you turn the page, and there's no reason to go back to it. I kind of feel like the writer didn't dig deep enough. You know, and that the language isn't it, like that's what I love to go back with. You know, poems that 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 I continue to learn from, like Phil Levine, for example. Now this poem. I didn't realize I read this poem uh, very quickly. I, I could think of it like a wellspring, so you can keep dr drawing water from a work, you know. And the, if the author isn't drawing water from the work, why should the reader? I mean, that's really paraphrase. This is a changing of a quote from Robert Frost, okay. right? He says, uh, "No surprise in the writer, no, no surprise in the reader. No tears in the writer, no tears in the reader." You know. So 
Now, this poem I wrote in about 10 or, 10 or 15 minutes, 12 or 15 minutes. So I was listening to Queens of the Stone Age. I quickly folded up. It was verbatim what it is here now. There was a couple lines that I excised, and this is what it was. And I folded it up, put it in a Ziploc bag, and I carried it in my chest pocket the rest of the time I was in country. right? And nobody knew that, that I had this poem in my chest pocket. you know. And then I realized at one point, because I'd been in Fresno, California. I was a machinist, and I was in a band, and I started taking a couple of poetry classes. And, walking across campus. This is years before I've been in the military, you know. And um, there's uh, another poet who's passed away now named uh, Andres Montoya. He wrote The Ice Worker Sings and other songs and, or poems. And he, um, he handed me this, shoved me this, shoved a poem in my hand. So you got to read this, you know. And it was this guy that was teaching on campus named Phil Levine, you know, who later became poet laureate of the United States. And, and he, um, it, it's unlike most of his poems. It's called They Feed, They Lion. And that poem starts um, something like, Out of burlap sacks, out of bearing butter, out of black bean and wet slate bread, out of the acids of rage, the candor of tar, out of creosote, gasoline, drive shafts, wooden dollies, they lie and grow. If a body is what you want, then here is bone and gristle and flesh. Here is the clavicle snapped wish, the aorta's open valves, the leap thought makes at the synaptic gap. Here is the adrenaline rush you crave. Hmm? So the tree is just, you know, and part of the tree, yeah. And that's the branch uh, leafing out into a poem, you know. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I carried the music of that poem of his. This is maybe a better way to say it. And I could mime it. And, you know, we can mime and mimic the poems that, and voices that we, are, we inherit. And that's useful practice to learn how to, to work the instrument, you know. But there are some times where I think, for my case, I feel like I carried his music with me. And then when I had my own difficult times, I was able to lean on that music and create my own music. It's still my poem, you know. So I don't feel like Harold Bloom's anxiety of influence <laughs> over this, you know. I, I, I kind of think that's bullshit. I, I, I feel like there's a great inheritance, and we're part of a, a tradition. And, and there's, there, our songs sing backwards as well as forwards, but they, maybe if I, I would say they have to first sing in their own time, you know. Is it also the music of, it seems very specific music of war, um, yeah, that the yeah. bullet, and, and, and again the memoir is, is full of these, the idea of, 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 of war having a language, of, of weapons having a language, of wounds yeah. having a language. Um, and the internalization of that. You know, I mean, the language gets internalized inside of us. It isn't just a, it, it is a communication thing that we have, where we share, but it's also internalized specifically inside the instrument of our bodies. And when, and it's, it's part of the, it's connected with some of the traumas that we store there too, but they're not always, you know, they're not all, they're jumbled and fragmented, and it's, it, so I think that's why it's, I, I get conflicted with some, by some words like the word enemy, you know. I guess the one thing I'm just going to say is that the, we inherit these words, words of war, as as like for me as a soldier going off to war, and being in a combat zone, but they're, I'm learning the definition of them as I go into war, and I'm helping to redefine those words. But they're being redefined also inside of me. I'm trying to figure out what does that mean. And then when I share them with other people, it's, you know, as we do with all language, the definition is, is being slightly colored or added to and changed and developed. Is that what you meant earlier when you were saying enemy target? Is, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. These right? sorts of... Yeah, where the word enemy is now being it's steeped in, in, a, in a new you know, conflict zone, a new situation. And we're adding to the... the the history of the word enemy that's been handed down to the generations. Yeah.